Do you love Jesus? Say amen. amen. So get glad to be with you today in the house of the Lord. And this uh, today is our last guiding light. Now next Sunday, we're actually going to take this to number nine. This is number eight because we started it with the need for guidance. How many of you still need some guidance? I need some guidance. And the whole point is not just to do, you know, six or seven or eight, nine messages, but to equip you with some understanding with how to operate in the guidance system that God's given. If you have your notes this morning, um, you know, we've got this plane on here and trying to land in a runway with some runway lights on both sides. And you know what we've been doing with this is an attempt to give an analogy and show you how a pilot lines up the nose of the plane and the, and the landing gear in between a runway with lights on both sides, and then he lands the plane safely, knowing that that's the strip, that's the place he's supposed to use to get the plane down out of the air onto the ground. This morning, as we uh, look at this one, today is number seven of the guiding lights. Next Sunday, we'll be doing a real quick review, uh, just a summary over each of them, about two or three minutes for each of the seven, and then we'll be taking the rest of our time for a Q&A session. So I encourage you to be here because it'll be intensely practical. We'll be receiving and answering to the best of our ability and by the grace of God, the tweeted and texted in questions that come in and there'll be a, a, a number on the screen and also printed in your bulletin notes. So excited today. What a tremendous presence of God in this place. And it, it, he was here this morning before you ever, ever got here. We, we were in our, in our practice, our warm-up time in the worship, and just it just sat down on me over there, and I was just weeping. And uh, the, the whole band, Alexander did such an amazing job on how he loves and just flowing. There's such a great spirit in the band and the praise team right now. And I'm so thankful for what God is doing in this church, just, just to... Just to be able to, to slow down for a moment in the middle of all the stuff that's out of line, the ducks that are not yet in a row in my life, the quackers that are running around, the, the mess, the mess that's not quite yet been made into a message yet, the test that I'm currently in the middle of that's not quite yet become a testimony, it's still cooking in the middle of all of that, that I can just pause and I can just stop and just say, God, I'm so overwhelmed at how much you love me. And just thank him for his presence in this place. I would just ask if you would stand with me, please, for one, once more. We're going to look today to two passages of scripture. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Find a screen where it's comfortable for you to read and read out loud with me, please. Here we go. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We can test, we can discern, we can prove what the will of God is. Passage number 2, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. This passage is one of those familiar Bible verses. Sometimes people don't know where it's located. But we know John 3.16, we know Jeremiah 29.11, thoughts and peace and give you a future and a hope. And everybody knows God works all things together for our good. Well, this is the passage in which it's found. And so this morning we're talking about 
circumstantial evidence, God getting up in the middle of all the stuff that's going on in our lives and working it out. So let's read the passage together. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you today that you have called us. You called us because you predestined us. And you predestined us because you foreknew us before the foundation of the world. Thank you that there's nobody in this room standing here today that you didn't know them before they were ever a glimmer in their daddy's eye. God, thank you that you knew where we would be in this moment in time today, the situations we're facing. The Lord, people in this room today that are in a place of hopelessness, we pause and we direct our focus and our gaze up to you, our only hope. Be our strength, be our shield, be our guide. Spirit of God, do what no man can do. Open ears and open eyes, and you're the only teacher. I can't do anything apart from you, but with you I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I love you, Lord. I love this people. I ask you, O oh God, today that everything that we do and say in these few moments would bring glory and honor to you, and we'll be careful to give you all the praise. In Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. you may be seated together presence of the Lord. All things work together for our good? Really? I think when you understand this whole passage that we've read here, which by the way, theologians call the golden chain of redemption. He foreknows, he predestines, he calls, he justifies, he glorifies. Before the foundation of the world, God knew you. He marked you. Marked out, pro-horizo, predestined, marked out your horizon, knew that you would be in this place today. By the Spirit, I believe that he's going to be calling, the effectual calling, where he calls his sheep by name. And those he calls, he justifies. Those he justifies, he glorifies. And actually, it's in the past tense. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What's standing around in your life? We look at the etymology of the word circumstance, and it comes from the, word, the idea of a circle, circum. Stance is the idea of to put in position. So those things that are standing around you in your life, those pressures, personal guilt, expectations, just the stuff of ordinary life, the mortgage payment due at the first of the month, the deadline on the project, the pressure in your home because of a financial crunch that you're in, the challenge to a relationship that's not yet what you want it to be, the heartbreak of the struggle of raising teenagers and seeing them make mistakes that you hope that they wouldn't make. The offense that comes when people may or may not deliberately wrong you. And the feeling that you have to deal with when you sense that 
place of hurt. All these are circumstances that are a part of the mental questions, the emotional anguish, the physical challenges, the pains that we have sometimes, especially as we're growing older. I'm, I know some of you older than me will look at me and go, oh, you're just, you're just still a kid. At the same time, I can tell a difference from now at 51. I worked in the yard all day yesterday from 7.30 in the morning till about 5 o'clock, and I have muscles this morning that I forgot that I had. <laughs> they're letting me know that they're there. Just dealing with the stuff that is around us, stuff that we plan and then life happens. And that's even after you've sought the Lord and you've got a clear word from God and you've lined up the guiding lights as we conclude this one today. Sometimes stuff just does not happen, right? The promotion doesn't come through. The house doesn't sell. The prayer doesn't get answered the way you wanted it to get answered. Sometimes the timing of it is an issue. Are you hearing me this morning? In, in the middle of all of that, sometimes Christians are too quick to judge from one moment to the next something is being good or bad in their lives. It's, it's like we're almost micromanaging from one second to the next whether we think something is good or bad. Christians, I don't know why it is, but we seem to be, we seem to be captivated by this kind of a myopic Existence where we're looking from one second to the next and we're judging too quickly in our circumstances and calling it good one second and bad the next. And it's like the story I heard of a, of a fellow who uh, was telling a friend of his he had been on a plane and the guy said, oh, you, you flew somewhere. Oh, that's good. And the guy said, well, no, the engine went out. And then the friend says, oh, that's bad. And, and he says, well, we had a parachute. And the friend says, oh, well, that's good. He said, no, the ripcord didn't work. And the friend says, oh, that's bad. He says, well, we were over a farmer's field and I saw a haystack. And the friend says, oh, that's good. He said, no, I missed the haystack and hit the pitchfork. He said, no, that's bad. <laughs> Greg laughed at the last service, so it's still, still funny. It's still good. Um, do you see yourself in that? We, please, please put up the next point. Yeah, thank you. There it is. Christians too often judge circumstances as good and bad from one moment to the next. Oh, this is good. Oh, this is bad. Oh, this is good. Oh, this is bad. And too many times we don't stop to recognize and realize that it's in the middle of all of that that we have an omniscient and an omnipotent God who truly is working all things together for our good. And sometimes it's difficult to explain that because there are people that are sitting in the room this morning that are facing tragedy. There's a family in our church it was in the 9 o'clock service this morning that just heard the fateful news of a beloved aunt and uncle that were killed in a car accident. Three cars. Three people died. How do you explain that? God-fearing people, God-loving people who raise children and grandchildren to love God, and they have a legacy. They have, their credentials are the family that they have. And, and you see that and you go, God, why? And there are inexplicable questions that we ask. And I, I'm not a triumphalist in the sense that I'm just always trying to cram 
how good everything is all the time down somebody's throat because we go through some hard seasons. We go through some difficult times. I've faced those kinds of crises when I've prayed and sought God and fasted and given up meals and stood in agreement with people and then something just seemed like out of nowhere it hits and you go, God, what in the world is going on? Beautiful day yesterday, great time in the yard. I just, I love my wife. We had a great time working together and just doing things, getting it up to speed and cleaning up and just exciting to see what all the Lord's doing in our lives right now. It's a wonderful season. I'm excited about that. We, uh, I ran out to Methodist Germantown last night to the hospital to see one of our parishioners who'd had surgery and, um, it was about 73, 74 degrees. It's the temperature of heaven outside. And I put the top down on my Jeep, feeling that I needed to be led by the Spirit of God and pray without my head covered. And, and uh, <laughs> so I'm just, I'm loving life. I'm headed across the bridge. I'm driving. I mean, I'm cranking it. I'm worshiping. I'm just, God, you're so good, so amazing. Go and pray for the people that were there and had a wonderful time, great season of fellowship. Head back home. It's so beautiful. And I'm thinking, this has been a great day. It's not going to be maybe a little chance of shower. Not really much. It's probably not going to do anything. So I left the top off last night of the Jeep. It's outside. Not a big deal. I get up, get dressed. I'm, I'm awake. Plenty of time this morning. I've already got my message ready. I'm praying. I'm just, just amazing feeling. Just, God, you're so great. And just, it's just wonderful. And I head out of our neighborhood and I'm coming down Medell Marconi. And there's probably not a thundercloud for 100 miles around. And I, I turn onto Medell Marconi and the heavens break loose. <laughs> it's a 25 mile an hour speed limit down through there, and I'm doing 50 trying to get across the track. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> trying to get this thing into underneath the JP car wash so I can put the top up. And as soon as I get the top up and hit the latches, I stood under that thing this morning at, a, at 10 minutes of light, and I said, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> and it's like I heard the Lord say, well, what are you preaching on today? <laughs> Circumstantial evidence. Now, I should have put the top up last night, I know. And I should have listened to my wife who told me to put the top up last night. <laughs> it's another guiding light in my life. <laughs> That's a warning light on the dashboard of my life going, put the top up. <laughs> and it's, you know, I kind of backed up and I thought, and I'm standing there and I've got the top up and I'm in the middle of J&P car wash there on 77. And I'm looking and honest to God, the sun is out. It, it had just, this shirt was wet. And I'm looking and it's just, I came through one little section, whoosh, and then the top's up and it's like, they're in a cloud in the sky. And I'm, start, I'm stopping to think about how easily distracted we can get sometimes with meaningless stuff. With stuff that doesn't even matter and doesn't even count. And we can lose the peace of God over it because something does not just go right like we would like it to go. Now, just realize when I'm preaching to you, I'm standing up here confessing my sin to you at this very moment. This was this morning for me. I'm coming in. I'm going to preach on circumstantial evidence and tell you guys how you all need to do it. And on the way, God reminds me 
that in the middle of all of my focus and my living and all of this stuff, that, you know, it's God is working all things together for my good. And I just backed up to remember that there have been times when I have momentarily, in one of those, oh, it's good, oh, it's bad, oh, it's good, oh, it's bad moments, after I've actually lived through it and my circumstances start to speak to me and I realize that what had happened, God actually saved me something that if I hadn't diverted for 10 minutes that I could have been in an accident. You've all heard me tell the story. I told it at the beginning of the series. I'm going to take time to, to remind you of it again. Drew was about 18 months old, maybe right at two, and it was stupid. We were idiots, I know, and it's just one of those other things where we weren't, weren't doing what we should have done. He's standing up in the front seat of Dewey's car. Dewey's driving. Dawn's in the front seat. I'm in the back. We're coming down Madison Avenue, heading to Front Street there, right in the front of the U.S. Customs House. And last second, right there in that last block, I slapped Dewey on the shoulder and I said, get over. And he moves into the right-hand lane, proceeding toward Front Street, heading toward the river, coming back this way. And as soon as he gets over, a car comes careening around the corner, going the wrong way down a one-way street, because Madison at that time in Memphis history was a one-way street there through, through downtown. And we all looked at each other and just stopped and blood just froze. And we said, thank you, Jesus. Because if that hadn't happened that way, we would have probably, some people would have died. Certainly my son would have gone through the windshield. Yes, we were stupid, but aren't you thankful that God sometimes helps you in spite of your stupidness? Thank God he's helped me in the face of my stupidity. And I think about circumstances that I have faced, that I've dealt with, and they've not happened the way I wanted them to. And and sometimes on the way through or back to the other side, it's not till they begin to speak to me that I can understand exactly what the Lord was doing or saying. And so with that today, I have one story. I have a story that you may or may not know is in the Bible. This is from Numbers chapter 22. Children of Israel have been delivered out of Egypt. Pharaoh has finally let them go, and he is so desperate to get rid of them. And the people, the residents of Egypt, have basically said, Please go. Here, take our silver and our gold and our precious stones, and here's some food. Just get out of here. Because they'd had all of the ten plagues that they could stand. And they knew that if they let the people of Israel go, that all that dealing of God would go with them. They'd been delivered by the blood from Egypt. The people had been overwhelmed with the stench of a land that had been roasting lamb the night of the Passover. The whole area was covered in red graffiti because crosses had marked the lintels of the doorposts. We had signs that we'd never seen before as Egyptians and we're trying our best to get these Israelites out of the land. And so they come out of Egypt by the blood. God delivers them by the blood. And their next important step is that they're going down to the Red Sea. And the scripture says they're baptized into Moses in the sea and in the cloud. This is the Old Testament type or the prophetic picture of the next step that you take because you're delivered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the next step is that you identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism. And then you're raised to a new life. Exodus chapter 14 tells the story how the children of Israel came to the Red Sea and God opened the watery hinges and he let them be chased. The circumstantial evidence was not in their favor because it looked like God was going to let the Egyptians catch up with them. But they didn't have the vantage point that God had. 
God knew he had something up his sleeve and he was going to let Pharaoh and the chariots of Egypt chase them right into the Red Sea and the last little granny and that last little Yorkie terror that, terrier that came barking. I don't know that Israel has a Yorkie breed or not, but I just see that in my mind. And it's probably because that was in the Cecil B. DeMille movie. That had to be the way the Ten Commandments happened. And when God speaks, he sounds like Charlton Heston. So the last little dog goes across and they're seeing biting on their heels in a distance. Here comes Pharaoh's hosts and chariots and the armies and the hordes of Egypt are chasing them down. And it looks like God who led them out is going to leave them out to dry. But they don't see because their circumstances are so close standing around them that they don't know that God's going to lead their enemy right into the sea and then close the watery hinge on them. And then they're going to look up in a few moments and Miriam, sister of Moses, are going to take out her tambourine and start a dance and lead all the women of Israel in a dance saying, the Lord is our strength and song and he's gone out with a shout and he's delivered us from the hands of the Egyptians. Hallelujah. They couldn't see it until after they'd lived through it and then their circumstances began to speak to them. It's not until you've, after you've made it through the time of crisis, until the tragedy is in the past, until you've prayed and you've seen God move mountains in your life and the mountain is in the sea. That's when you can see what God was doing in the middle of that when he was standing right there in front of your face as a circumstance in your life. Children of Israel have come out and Numbers 22 records the story of the king of Moab and they've heard, all of the nations in the area have heard how God has delivered the children of Israel from Egypt. And the kings of these nation, people, groups, these city-states literally are terrified. And Balak, the king of Moab, says this. He said, this horde has come out of Egypt and like an ox licks up the grass, they're going to consume everything around us. And Balak, king of Moab, calls for Balaam, who is a prophet. Everybody say Balaam. Spelled B-A-L-A-A-M. Balaam evidently must have had some kind of a reputation as being a for-hire prophet because king of Moab sends some messengers his way with some divination offerings and some important men and they show up at Balaam's house and they said, listen, this people of Israel is coming through our land and we're going to have to defeat them. But we feel like we can't. We can't. They are so great and this God who delivered them seems to be so great. We cannot take them out. We want you to come and put a curse on them so they are weakened and then with our armies that we can defeat them. Balaam surely and sorely by a word of the Lord and the instruction of God rejects it and says, no, I don't have anything to do with that. God says, no. They go back to Balak, who's the king of Moab. Moab is actually connected to Israel. I, I, like the old preacher said years ago, I got my tongue tied around my eye teeth and I couldn't see what I was saying. I said Noah last service and it's actually Lot. Lot's two daughters Lot's two daughters got him drunk and laid with him and got pregnant by their own father. And they birthed Ben-Ami, which is the father of the Ammonites, and Moab, which is the father of the Moabites. These, throughout the rest 
of old covenant history are two critical enemies to the people of God. Now, this is Lot's two daughters. Remember, he's a nephew to Abraham. Abraham births the whole covenant nation of Israel. Because Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and Esau. Jacob wrestles with the angel. His name is changed to Israel. He has 12 sons. He becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. So we're talking about some cousins here. The Moabites and the Ammonites, literally all the way traced back, are, are the illegitimate children of Lot when he got drunk by his daughters who had him lay down with them because they didn't think they had the opportunity of finding a husband and having propagating any children. The moral of that story is, is that when you do something that breaks the commandment of God, you're going to reap a crop that's going to cost you down the road. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If we to the flesh reap to the flesh, we reap corruption. If we sow to the Spirit, we will reap everlasting life. Say amen. amen. It was Lot. Last service was a tremendous message, and I come out of it, and somebody said, did you mean Lot? And I went, are you kidding me? Long, long time ago, I would have so much pride, I would have gone home and been embarrassed for two days and wanted to like stuck my head in the dirt somewhere. Now I don't care. I just, it happens, you know? Don't hear that the wrong way. It just happens. You just realize, hey, I'm 51. Once in a while, I'm going to mess something up and say the wrong thing. <laughs> I just learned not to sweat the small stuff. <laughs> and you know, there is some coincidence there because they both had drunk stories. Noah did and so did Lot. <laughs> and that's another lesson. I'll leave that alone. <laughs> So Balak is the king of Moab. Moab is, there's some cousins, 13 down the line, twice removed, and they're scared that there's going to be something pretty horrific that's going to happen, and they want to defeat them. So Balak, the king of Moab, sends for Balaam, the prophet. He rejects them the first time. Balak says, send some higher up, some princes of the land, some, some senators, or some representatives from our Congress or whatever, and take some bigger silver and gold and tell this man, look, you got to come with us. And so, God first tells Balaam, no, you can't go. And then he turns around and he says, yes, go ahead. Balaam prays and God says, I want you only to say what comes out of your mouth. And so, Balaam gets on his donkey and this story really opens up after having given you the history from the first 21 verses. Now from verse 21 to 34, you find this in your Bible and I, I challenge you to go home and read this because it's a very interesting story. Numbers 22 verses 21 through 34. And this is where the scripture says Balaam saddles his donkey and he has his servants with him and so he's headed down the road and he's just riding his donkey. And we're not talking about a gallop of a horse but we're talking about a little trotting donkey. So Balaam's riding his donkey. And he's heading down the road, and all of a sudden the donkey just veers off hard to the right into the middle of a field. Balaam takes out the whip and whips the donkey, and he's able to kind of get him moved a little bit and not quite corrected back onto course again. And so he's whipping the donkey, and the donkey heads down between two rows in a vineyard, and all of a sudden there's a wall and, and the donkey is acting so strange and so weird and, and he presses up against the wall and he presses Balaam's foot against the wall, painfully so. I'm sure that the prophet probably at this point uttered some expletive that was not recorded in the scripture for your edification. 
And so he whips the donkey again, and the donkey heads down this little bitty tiny narrow passage, and all of a sudden he gets to some point and just stops. The donkey sits down. Balaam's on him. Balaam gets off the donkey and takes his whip out and starts to just beat the daylights out of that donkey, and something crazy happens. I'm dating myself by mentioning this, but how many of you, everybody in here that's probably late 40s, my age, 51, 60s, and 70s, how many remember seeing the movies in black and white with Francis the Talking Mule? Remember Francis the Talking Mule? Well, this is the biblical version right here. I don't, this, I don't know if the name was Francis or whatever. But the donkey starts talking to Balaam. When have I ever not taken you where you wanted me to go, he says. I have let you get on my back and I've carried you wherever you wanted to go my whole life. I've been serving you. Why do you think now at this point that I wouldn't do anything that would be in your favor? While the donkey is talking, Balaam's eyes are opened and he sees the angel of the Lord with sword drawn standing right there in that narrow place. And the angel of the Lord speaks to Balaam and he says, I was going to let the donkey pass and save him but kill you. Now, wait a minute. Is God out of his mind? Because God said he couldn't go, then he said he could go. And when he starts to actually go and do what God said he could do, then God stands in the way opposing him, the angel of the Lord himself with a sword drawn in the path. He's headed down the road. The donkey veers off. He whips him. Can't quite get back on track and he heads down two rows in a vineyard and he gets his foot crushed against the wall and then finally he gets into such a narrow place the donkey just sits down it is a progressive severity uh, uh, of circumstances that are getting worse and worse and worse and progressively worse don't 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 say amen because i know there everybody in this room has at some point in your life experienced exactly what i'm talking about where if you turn around and, and, and last week the refrigerator and the ice maker and the transmission on the car and the hot water heater all broke down and your wife got mad at you and your kid flunked the test that you worked on all this time trying to help them in school and you're going what else can Any of you know what I'm talking about? It's like everything that can go wrong, it's Murphy, Murphy's law is definitely at work. And the, the, the point of the story that we start to see here is that, first of all, I just want to remind you that you've got a distant cousin who's trying to curse you. Sometimes it's surprising who is trying to curse you. Literally, it's, it's, it's an overwhelming thing because sometimes the very folks in your own house are the ones who speak against something that you're trying to believe and trust God to accomplish. Balaam is just riding out his circumstances. Doesn't know what the next step is going to be. Doesn't know what's around the corner, but he knows that he's having some problems out of this donkey he's never had. It's time for a trade-in or we got to get this one back to budget, rent a mule. We got to get a new one. <laughs> Because he's not listening. How many times do we take out the whip and we beat our circumstances? We try our best to get everything in line and whip it back in shape. And we cuss out the one that we love. Don't even look at me in that tone of voice. 
you know, we, we, we totally lose a sense of focus and we get completely distracted and we lose our sanctification and we freak out and we just think, God, where are you in the middle of all of this? And he never has moved. He's still right there with you. He's actually trying to save you from something down the road. And we sometimes have such a myopic experience where we can't see anything past the, 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 the hand in front of our face. There's a power lesson here that I want you to see. Number one, the seen world is affected by the unseen world. Say that with me. The seen world is affected by the unseen world. There are powers and principalities. There are angels and there are demons. There are good and there are bad forces. All of which are under the divine authority and the sovereign power of God who has final say. And it isn't it amazing that sometimes people, people are often enraged by the very circumstances that God is using to save them. How many times it's not until after I've actually lived through it and I can turn around and my circumstances start to speak to me and then I say, oh, wow, God, I see what you were doing. My son, Drew, I'm very thrilled what he's been able to just see growth in his life, raised in church. He graduated last May 2011 with his degree in international business, and he has to come back home because he doesn't have a job yet. And he's had four and a half years of being on his own, and just, I'm a man now. He's back into the house, and his dad is telling him what to do, and there were, you know, a couple little challenges while he was living there. And so he looks for a job and he gets a job at Tremendous Nursery. He's had Spanish all through high school. He's had Spanish all four years of college. He spent a semester in Spain studying at the University of Huelva. For his international business degree, he does an internship in Ecuador. He really thinks he's something. Now, I don't want to say this the wrong way. He's great. It's amazing because I'm going to tell a story here, and you're going to get a great lesson out of what he told me. And I've asked him if I could say this, so I'm not doing this without permission. But those 6 a.m. mornings, those 5.30 a.m. mornings when he's waking up and he's drinking coffee, and I'm sitting there reading the Bible, and he's drinking coffee to head out the door to deal with these two Mexicans who know about that much Spanish, I mean that much English, who are working for tremendous, tremendous nursery. And Drew has to translate what the boss who owns the company to tell these two guys what's going on. And they're cutting grass and they're digging holes and they're planting trees and they're landscaping yards. And it's, it's close to Hades outside in July. It's hot. And he's a college graduate. Dad, I don't understand. He's putting in applications all over the place. He's calling folks, trying to make connections, trying to network. He's wondering what's happening. He ends up at the end of the summer after having worked about three months out there and really made great friends, Pedro and I forget the other guy's name, just sweet guys. Drew learned so many things from them who are here 
He said to me, and this is not a part of my analogy, but I just want to stop and tell this. He said, for everybody he wants to, act, to, 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 to fuss about these folks that are here taking their so-called jobs, I don't see any of them out there working like these guys are working. He said, and they're willing to do it for not a lot of money, and they send 80% of it back home to support their families. And these are good people. And Drew just kind of fell in love as friends with these two guys and just, he said, has such a simple life and they're so happy. He said, Dad, I want to be that happy and they don't have anything. And he said, they're just so happy. He would say that to me sometimes, just father to son, just two guys talking and tear come up in his eye. So he left to go to Fayetteville and he was going to take a job over there. In the process, he ends up getting an interview with the company that he works for now and he ends up having a second interview and they call him back for the third one and he calls me after he has his third interview, which is the company now that he's working for. He said, Dad, you remember all those days that I was just nearly in a cuss that I was having to get up and go out there and work with those Mexican guys? He said, my third interview with C.H. Robinson was totally conducted in Spanish and they, even though I'd been trained for four years in college and I had been to to Spain, and I learned to speak perfect Castilian Spanish. He said, so much of what I had to answer in the interview, I would have not been able to do had I had not had that three months of hours a day talking to those guys every day because I learned the slang. And after he was through it, then his circumstances began to speak to him. He had been beating the, the donkey in his life trying his best to make the circumstances get in line with what he wanted and didn't know that all along God was using that as a language school to prepare him. Come on, somebody. Hear what I'm saying to you this morning. Classroom can give you some great things. But he called me and he said, you know, I did not have any idea that all that time I was fussing about it and just nearly, I was almost angry at God going, I've spent five years now, an extra semester in Spain and all these different things, hoping to try to get a job. And he said, I had no, I did not have the ability to see that God was blessing me with a three-year experience to prepare me to open the door for what I was about to have in this job. He's, he's on the phone with about 150 phone calls a day, dealing with a whole lot of their South America, Latino, Spain, Spanish, Mexican, and if you guys don't know it, Castilian Spanish in Spain and the slang from Mexico is very different. And if he had not experienced that and gone through that, he would not have been prepared for the next blessing that God had in line for him. Until we live through it, our circumstances sometimes don't speak to us. And we're so quick to say, oh, that's good, oh, that's bad, oh, that's good, oh, that's bad. And we're living back and forth between this kind of a, Elijah says, why do you halt between two opinions? Make up your mind. It is a God above all things who is omniscient and who is omnipotent and who is in spite of your ability to see it, working all things together for your good. And the current challenge is preparing you for the next blessing. And the next blessing is getting you ready to walk into the next challenge that you're going to have that's going to bring bigger blessing. But so many times we're so quickly changing our glasses. Oh, that's good. Oh, no, that's bad. Oh, that's good. And we're living in this kind of a wrestling match and a tug of war in our lives. If we could just back up and rest a little bit and just say, thank you, Jesus. That in the middle of all of this, and let me just say there are difficult things I don't have explanations for. 
I've rejoiced with families in the church that rejoice. I've wept with families that have been hurt deeply because they got that call that you don't ever want to get when you hear the phone ring at 3 in the morning. And I don't have words to say. And sometimes it's not the words that we say, but it's just our presence with people, letting them know that we love them. And sometimes those people have to go through the season of the pain to get on the other side and to be able, like Job, to say, I don't understand this, but though you slay me, yet I will trust you. And yes, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When you're in a season of blessing, it's easy to go, God's working it all out. It's the hard time when you've lost the child. You've experienced the heart-wrenching pain. I heard a story this week of a family. It's a friend of mine, actually much more close to Dawn, that had a daughter who took her own life. She was in medical school and just felt like she couldn't perform. And just the wrestling of good, godly people, godly parents. That the, the season that I know that they went through in just going, and all that we do, trying to push our children to do their best, and they had to back up and go, is it my fault? Did I push too hard? The circumstances that happen to us sometimes they're all stacked around us. Sometimes they have the ability in the night seasons when we're lying on the bed and we're not hearing anything but the 10,000 voices that are accusing us and the guilt that we experience sometimes as parents going, did I push too hard? Have I, have I gone too far? Did I overreact? And the pain that friends feel and you have to go get beside them and, you, and they look at you and you go, they go, Pastor, I don't understand. And, I, and I'm just, I'm going, I don't have any words either. But I can tell you that God can carry you through this. I remember when I was 10 and our house exploded in a flash fire. Gas had built up in the house and my little, my little brother Dewey was seven years old and he was taken, rushed to Baptist Hospital and honestly they didn't think he would live and lying under a burn tent, third degree burns. And it's so easy just to back up and go, God, why, why? And I remember both of us being in the car with Aunt Lucille and I said, why don't you go home? You know, you don't like to do this anyway. And I've never said this to anybody. I remember wrestling as a 10-year-old going, why didn't I let him stay in the car with us? Because then he wouldn't have been burned. Because this is stupid brother stuff. And I didn't share this in the last service. It's amazing how just this whole thing, I don't know who it's for, but God is drawing up stuff out of the well of my spirit this morning just to say to you that he's got this thing. Some of you have been blaming yourselves for something that you did and somebody else made a decision and you think it was your fault. Some of you are sitting here this morning and you're facing hopeless circumstances in a, in a marriage that looks like it has no hope left. It's on the rocks. Others of you, there's a business and you're just going, God, there's nothing left. I'm in a famine. Why, did I make a bad decision here? And so many times the enemy 
can just whisper. He doesn't even have to shout. He can whisper, and it's in those night seasons when we're on the bed alone and we're wide awake looking at the ceiling, and you're, you're fighting a war, a war that's indescribable right up here. I don't have any idea what you're facing this morning. And you know what? It doesn't matter because I'm telling you, I'm here to represent one who knows the intricacies of the stuff that you're facing. This one is the one I left at last because it doesn't have any pat answers. You cannot let circumstances determine what you think the will of God for your life is. Because there are times when God, like the angel of the Lord, in the face of Balaam's donkey, will stand and oppose him. And he does not until later have his eyes open. And the circumstances begin to speak back to him. And the the donkey talks. Sometimes the things that we face come with great joy. And sometimes they come with great pain and sorrow. And we have to walk through them until we can look back and see what they mean. Sometimes people are so enraged by the very things that God is using to save them. It's so difficult for me sometimes because I'm a detailed person. I'm very, I want to give you the big picture. I want to be a good Bible teacher. I don't want to make mistakes like I did in the last service and totally blow a Bible story and attribute to Noah, what was a lot. And then I just had to laugh and go, okay, yeah. <laughs> yep, you're human, you know, so. Not that I ever questioned it. And my wife always reminds me that I'm not, so. <laughs> I didn't mean that. I'm looking for a place to land this plane. I'm looking for my runway right now. Are you getting anything out of this this morning? The challenge that I have is not to, to build for you any concept, and I've got to finish, that you think just comes from one obscure passage of Scripture. Paul spent half of his life in a prison cell. And if he was judging from one minute to the next, this is good, this is bad, he would have probably been so distracted he could not have given us some of the grandest truth of the Bible that's, or, that are what are called the prison epistles chained between two praetorium guards. Jesse Futrell preached a message, and this is another sermon in itself, but I, I just want to say to it quickly in just three sentences. He preached it about 25 years ago in North Carolina, and he talked, the message was called Three Men in a Boat. Jonah is in a boat. Paul is in a boat in Acts 27. Jesus is in a boat. The difference between them, Jonah's in a boat in a storm because he's out of the will of God. He's running from God. Paul in Acts 27 is in a boat in the will of God, headed to fulfill the will of God, but he's in a storm, in a boat. Jesus is in a boat with some disciples, and Jesus is the will of God. Jonah is out of the will of God in a boat in a storm. Paul is in the will of God in a boat in a storm. Jesus is the will of God in a boat in a storm. The whole point is, is that too many times we focus on the boat and the storm And we just too quickly judge the circumstance and say how bad it is. And the point is, you have to have your heart fixed on what you know is right and what is the will of God for your life. And not because you're in a boat in the middle of a storm. 
whether you're Jonah out of the wheel or Paul in the wheel or Jesus, who is the will of God. I'm just saying this morning as I finish this message, some of you are Jonah's and you're in a boat in a storm because you are running from God. Other people in the room, you're like Paul. You're in the boat in a storm because you're doing exactly what God's called you to do. And there's some opposition, some principalities and powers, some demonic forces that are trying to prevent you from doing what you know God has called you to do. None of us are Jesus. But what we all have to do is get Jesus in the boat with us. Because whatever boat he's in, he just gets up and says, peace be still. And it all stops. My last point. Circumstances are a means to God's guidance, but it's only safe to hearts that are totally guided by God. Don't let the storm in the boat that you're in keep you from doing what you know God has called you to do. Because sometimes God will send you in a way and you'll have to speak to a mountain and blow it into the sea in order to be able to get to where he's taking you. Other times, circumstances will unfold and it looks like there's a red carpet being opened and rolled out there for you, but yet there's something aching inside your heart that doesn't give you peace and inside your knower, inside your inner conviction, and you go, no, this looks great, but it's not the will of God for my life. How many of you hear what I'm saying? So just because circumstances look good doesn't mean it's God, and just because they look bad doesn't mean it's not God. Sometimes we have to stand in the face of them. We were at a prayer meeting in North Carolina, and this is my last little story, and I'm going to close. Sweet little old 80-plus-year-old lady named Miss Goldie. Little white-haired little sister who loved Jesus with all of her heart. She would pray. She was on a fixed income. Not, Not a wealthy lady by any means. She would come to our prayer services that we would have that many times would be the staff and maybe another dozen folks. We had maybe 20 folks or 20 or 25 folks that were at this prayer service at one time. We're just lifting up people in the congregation, praying for needs. Prayer request cards are there. And Miss Goldie prays and she says, I really need a roof on my house and I don't have the money to do it. And it's leaking and there are problems with it. And she says, I don't know where it's coming from. I just believe God can bless me somehow. I don't know where it's going to, what source he's going to use. And Miss Goldie prays. And we're in the middle of hurricane season in North Carolina. And literally within less than about 10 days, a hurricane blows through and rips the roof off of Miss Goldie's house. And at first, Miss Goldie is in that place where the circumstances are not quite speaking to her yet. And she's discouraged and she's hurt and... She's got the whip out like Balaam. She's trying to beat the donkey. And somebody looked at her and the angel of the Lord spoke and opened her eyes and said, Miss Goldie, do you not realize that the insurance company now is going to put a brand new roof on your house for you? Are you guys hearing what I'm saying this morning? Sometimes a storm of life can blow through and if you can just weather the storm and get to the other side of it, then greater blessing than you could have ever imagined can come and be yours. Some of you are in storms right now because of prayers you've prayed. You like that one, don't you, Raymond? I've learned to slow down. Just like today, boom, the heavens open. And I said, are you kidding me? And God said, well, what are you preaching on today? 
How out of the blue, sometimes stuff just happens. If we can just learn to rest and believe and know that God is big enough and he's got this thing. He has the intricate details of the circumstances of your life. Bow your hearts with me, please, for a quick word of prayer. Gracious God, I just ask you that for the people that are sitting under the sound of my voice this morning in this room, that you cause our circumstances to lead every one of us right to the foot of the cross. If you've never bowed your knee in your heart and said, Jesus, save me, I put my trust in you. I believe that you can work all things together for my good. If you've never taken that step today, I want to ask you to do that. Somebody in this room, God knew you before you were born. He marked you. And by the Spirit, I told different stories in this second service than I did in the first. And I believe God has been right up in the middle of this. And he's reaching into the closet of your heart. Maybe in some guilt that you've carried over a decision you made or a word that you said or a direction that you took. Maybe something happened. This morning, I just want to say to you, God's led you here today and your circumstances are leading you right to the cross. Very simply, all you have to do is say, Jesus, save me. I put my trust in you. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm going to ask you very quickly, very briefly, not going to embarrass anybody or calling one to the front, but I'm going to ask you if you'd like to be prayed for this morning, would you just slip up your hand? Anyone in the room who wants to take that choice, make the decision, I see that hand over there. Anybody else? Anyone else in the room? I want to just say, God, I'm giving it to you. Guard my life. Guard my heart. Guide me by the power of the Holy Spirit. Very simply, in just a moment, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Now I want to say to the believers here this morning, you've been walking with the Lord for years, and you're right now facing some circumstances, desperately need some guidance, have to make some decisions, need some guiding lights to come on on the dashboard of your spiritual car. A GPS system is, needs to kick in. Circumstances, one second look good, the next second they look bad. Who in the room this morning would just say, Pastor, pray for me. I need the Lord to open my eyes and help me to see what God is carrying me through to save me, to change me, to mold me. My hands around the room. Yes. Thank you so much. Back to our first. There was a brother who raised his hand. Lord, we join ourselves in agreement right now with this man. And thank you that as he prays in his heart and says, Jesus, save me, that you do what no man can do. We repent. We turn to you. We just put our trust in you, Jesus. Thank you that you do a work in the heart of my brother right now. That, that, that faith has already been given as a gift. And as he turns to you and says, I believe in you, Jesus, fill my heart with your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you do something that's only described in terms of what God can do. Every head still bowed. All these hands that went up all over this room, Lord, some in periods of sadness Lord some in periods of gladness decisions that have to be made lead us and guide us Lord forgive us when we like Balaam take the whip and beat our circumstances Lord open our eyes and let our circumstances speak to us thank you Lord 
that you help us to see sometimes the things that enrage us are the very things you're using to save us, protect us, guard us, guide us. Lord, let us rejoice with those that are rejoicing. Let us weep with those that are weeping in this great fellowship, the wonderful things you're doing by the Holy Spirit in Victory Church. We give you all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' mighty name, all of God's people said,